Mosul, Iraq, June 2nd, 2017. The group of aid workers stood in cold silence, peering at the gruesome sight. ISIS had been firing all night, and as dawn began to illuminate the double-lane highway, the shapes that were strewn about the road now came into focus. Bodies. Dozens and dozens of them. It was an absolute massacre. ISIS continued to take pot shots at the survivors and at anyone else who dared protrude their head above cover. As one of the men looked on at the sickening sight before him, he noticed movement. It was from a little girl seated next to a clearly dead woman, her mother. The little girl peered out from under the dead woman's burqa. Oh God, how can I save them? The man thought. It was 150 meters of open ground to that little girl, and ISIS had control of the adjacent hospital and had every angle covered with 50 caliber sniper rifles. The man gathered, agreeing that doing something was better than standing by and watching that little girl be senselessly killed. After much prayer and planning, a tank was procured, a smoke screen was provided, and it was now or never. The five volunteers stood, looked across the 150 yards between them and the survivors, then ran into a hail of noise, dust, and bullets. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the course of this season, we'll explore the lives of five men who each exemplified a crucial virtue of life with not just their words, but their actions. From these men, we hope you will learn that a life of virtue is something you can achieve, no matter the obstacle. Welcome to Episode 5, The Sacrifice of David Eubank hosted by Jamie Adams, with special guest David Eubank himself, founder of the Free Burma Rangers, a humanitarian movement helping displaced people in conflict areas around the world. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is sacrifice. Sacrifice is the denial of oneself for the benefit of another. It is something that can only be accomplished by giving something up, one's finances, time, or even one's life. When we think of sacrifice, we often think of those who bravely give their lives in service of their country, a soldier who gives their life to save the lives of his brothers in arms. But rarely do we see sacrifice offered towards complete strangers. It takes a different kind of person to sacrifice anything for a stranger, let alone one's personal safety. One such man is David Eubank, for over 20 years, David, his family, and their fellow aid workers have risked everything for the benefit of strangers who later became like family. By telling David's story, 
we will seek to learn just what it takes for us to lay down our own needs for the betterment of others, and to do it with joy and thanksgiving. We're joined in this episode by David Eubank himself. David is a former Army Ranger and member of the U.S. Special Forces and founder of the humanitarian aid group Free Burma Rangers in 1997. Since then, they have been on the front lines of conflict zones all over the world. The supplies, medical aid, and hope they have provided has helped displaced people groups from Burma to Sudan to Iraq and Afghanistan. David joined us for a chat via Zoom call from a small town in northeast Syria and what he shared is used throughout this episode. The book, Do This For Love, and the documentary, Free Burma Rangers, were also relied upon for details on David's story. David Eubank was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1960. Just a few months after his birth, his parents departed for Thailand for a call to the mission field. David was raised with the fundamental values of freedom, independence, hard work, and above all, a deep faith in God. David spent his early years in the small village of Sam Yaik and would spend the days running around with the village kids, learning Thai as his first language, and trekking through the jungle to remote villages with his father. By the age of five, he could shoot, swim, and ride a horse, and he grew to love the wilderness and freedom of the outdoors. He left for boarding school in the city of Chiang Mai at the age of seven, some 300 miles from his family. It was here during a bout of sickness and loneliness that he had his first real encounter with God, and he was baptized the following Christmas. David began to work hard on his physical fitness, and by the time he was a young teen was a tough, never stop, back down to nobody kid. He joined the Boy Scouts with his father as Scoutmaster, and further developed his wilderness skills. During this time, the Vietnam War was raging just a few hundred miles away, and David was dedicated to joining the fight just as soon as he could. Though he had spent almost all of his life thus far in the Far East, he had a strong sense of patriotism and love for America. He moved to Bangkok to attend an international high school, and with his friend Pete, whom he had met in boarding school, he spent most of his free time roaming the streets looking for a fight with bad guys. He stayed away from drugs and alcohol, and was successful in basketball throughout high school. It was David's belief that his education, his time in the Boy Scouts, his success in sports, his physical fitness, and his passion for beating up bad guys had prepared him to go to war as an American soldier. Well, I grew up, I was born in Texas, and that's just like its own country. Well, it was his own country, the only state that was for nine years. And that's, that's special. And they, that was paid for with blood, which always makes you look at things differently. I was born there, nine months old, my parents went to Thailand as missionaries, but you know, I grew up as a Texan kid. And listening, my dad fought in the Korean War, my granddad in World War I. And this was during the Vietnam War, during communism in Thailand, and it seemed like America was the hope for freedom in, in, as I was a little boy growing up. And so I grew up that way, and I thought, well, one is I, I want to be a soldier because I love action. That's, that's really the first reason. I'm actually an adventurer, I'm aspirating as a soldier because adventure first. And so, but to do that for a cause, for what I thought was part of God's kingdom on earth, freedom, and for America, my country, which generally had the right purposes. David received an ROTC scholarship to Texas A&M and after attending university set his sights on the special forces. By the age of 22, 
he had his first command of a platoon of 40 men on deployment in Panama. He was then selected as a platoon leader in the 75th Ranger Regiment based out of Fort Lewis in Washington State. He then tried out for special forces and qualified and was assigned to an A-team detachment commander. While on leave in Washington, David found joy in mountaineering. He had always loved climbing things, and the abundance of alpine challenges in the Evergreen State made for the perfect environment for his particular brand of R&R. David met and married a woman shortly after his entrance into the Special Forces, but the marriage was much harder than he anticipated, and the couple divorced after three years. Taking the opportunity to gain perspective through this devastating failure of his marriage, he saw his own selfishness in clear light. More importantly, he realized that the hole inside him could not be filled with accomplishments, adventure, or even a beautiful woman. It was only God who could make him truly whole. The fact was that he had surrendered to all the wrong things in his life, but none of the right things. As he sought to walk out a new path in life, desperate to do things God's way instead of his own, he met a woman by the name of Karen Hughesby, a special education teacher in Seattle. Karen said no to going out with David at first, but agreed to go on a technical climb of Mount Shuxon, a 9,131-foot glaciated peak in the North Cascades. And I remember at one really steep part, I looked down at her. She's roped right to me, you know, for her own safety, but it's basically to keep her close to me. And um, I said, how are you doing? She's never climbed a mountain in her life. And she looks up at me and she goes, I'm digging it. I said, who says that on their first climb? Because Shexon's not a walk-up. And I thought, who is this girl? And we got the summit. We went down. And I remember going down the glacier. You know, that's just a great descent. You just kind of plunge stepping down. And... Um, saying, God, I'll do anything. Let me marry this lady. I already, I knew all I needed to know. And she was smiling, bubbly, beautiful, friendly, brave, and she liked this stuff. David resigned from active duty as a major after 10 years in 1992 and enrolled in seminary in Pasadena, California. He and Karen dated on and off, and David was visiting her in Seattle during Christmas in 1993. He had once again asked her to marry him and received another no when someone called Karen's apartment asking for him. This was unusual to say the least. And I sit down to Karen and I ask her to marry me. She says no. And it's like my second or third time. I can't remember asking her to marry me. And it's another no. And then the phone rings. Dave, it's for you. I said, hey, I said, I'm not gonna answer the phone right now. And he goes, it's your dad. It's my dad. And I answered the phone. It's in, you know, in the book and maybe in the movie. I can't remember, but I answered the phone. He says, I have a leader of the Watt tribe here in the living room, and he's inviting you to come and help. And I was like, oh my gosh. I just felt like, and, he's, and my dad said, I think it's the Holy Spirit is behind this. And I said, I feel it. And I remember thinking, you say yes to this and you never see Karen again. And I thought, I'm gonna say yes, because although I love Karen more than anyone else, I can't be, imagine being married to anyone else. I'd rather follow God and go his way than trust my way, because I've failed every time I try to trust my way over God's way. Total failure. And I'm not going to do that again. So even if I'm single my whole life, which I'm not the single kind of person, but if I am, better to follow God. So I just turned, I said yes to my dad, I'm coming. And I turned to Karen, I said, I know you don't want to marry me. Um, that's, that's up to you, but I got to go. I'm going to go to Burma. The next morning, Karen asked if he could drive her to LA to stay with her parents. David's spring break was over, and hers was just starting, so he agreed and the two set off south 
on Interstate 5 towards Southern California. On the way down to LA, the couple stopped in Monterey and went to sit on the beach and talk about their future. It was 10 o'clock at night, he went home yet. So I went down to the beach and we sat down on the beach and looked up at the stars and the full moon. And we talked and she just said, you know, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you. I said, oh, I know what you don't want, but what do you do you want? Do you want to marry me? Because that's how I'm going. And she said, yes. It was like negotiating for a used car. So, and I was definitely a used car. So next morning, we, we were staying at my friend's house. Next morning, we went out to Lover's Point, which is really beautiful in Monterey. And I said, you said yes last night, but I want to be fair to you. you. You can take it all back. I don't want you to do this unless you're all in. You, know, I, you can drop the whole thing. You had a night to sleep on it. She goes, nope, I'm in. So we ended up getting married in Malibu on the beach. And then we went to Thailand and then into Burma. That was in 1993. And it was God that opened that way. David and Karen spent the summer in Burma, then returned to California for David to continue seminary. They continued this pattern of spending summers in Burma until David finished seminary and was ordained in 1995, and the couple moved to Thailand permanently in 1996. It was after this move that they began their forays across the Thai border into Burma to follow up on the initial invitation David had received. It didn't take long until they were blacklisted by the Burma government. Burma had seen internal conflict since independence from Britain in 1948. Multiple ethnic groups continue to resist the ruling government forces to this day in what is the world's longest ongoing civil war. 40 to 50% of the population of Myanmar is comprised of 100 plus ethnic groups, most of which have been persecuted and oppressed since the end of British rule. The Burma army had taken notice of David's visits to the Wa people over the past few years, and he was warned that he would be taken care of if he ever returned to Burma again. The Wa people are located in two pockets of Shan State in northeastern Myanmar. They are situated on the border with China in the northern pocket, and Thailand in the southern pocket. David met with Aung San Suu Kyi in mid-1996. Su Chi was an ethnic Burman who was fighting to lead the country out of oppression and corruption and for a more democratic Myanmar. She was under house arrest when David visited her and the fruit of the visit was a meeting with 13 major ethnic minority groups the following January. Just a few weeks after the meeting, the Burma army launched a major offensive displacing almost half a million ethnic Karen, Karini and Shan minorities. The offensive went all the way to the border, and refugees were now crossing into Thailand, and David felt the need to act. David visited a small border town to see what was really going on there himself. He met two Karen men who had escaped Burma, and the three of them climbed up a steep slope to get a glimpse of what was going on. When they did, they saw below them over a hundred Burma army soldiers. Two battalions, a thousand soldiers each, were in the area. On the dirt road below, there were countless ethnic Karen people hauling heavy loads for the army. This was forced labor, a kind of slavery. This was evident by the fact that every half dozen Karen, there was a soldier with a gun pointed at one of their backs. David had no weapon on him, so he was powerless to stop this gross act of abuse. Even if he did, it was him against hundreds of professional soldiers. 
He was taking a few photos when he heard behind him a gasp. As he looked over his shoulder, he could see one of the Karen men sobbing, with his teeth clenched over his forefinger, biting down hard in an attempt to stay quiet. The anger and sorrow in his eyes were unbearable. At first I had no weapon, but then later on, uh, and, and, I, and I go many places without weapons. I will always go to a place without a weapon. The weapon is a tool. And so we've done many, many missions without weapons. We don't have to have weapons. But the reason I carry one, which I don't always, but when I do is one, number one, so I can help other people. It's, second is to defend myself and my team. But defense is secondary, because if you really want to defend yourself, just run away. So the number one reason is so I can make a difference and not watch people get slaughtered. So for me, the a weapon is not necessary most of the time, but sometimes it's useful to have. And I, I carry a weapon in the context that you never change a human mind or heart with a bullet. It doesn't work. Only love and Jesus does that. And your acts of love have a chance of doing it. But sometimes a bullet is necessary because people just will not do that. But I don't consider myself a just war theorist or a pacifist or any, I have no policy except, Jesus, what do you want me to do now? Wanting to do something, David looked around and saw a Thai flag on a bamboo pole. He raised the flag as a symbol for the people below that they weren't alone and as a message to the Burma army that he had seen what they were doing. David yelled down to the soldiers and when he got back and returned, was gunfire. The men scrambled down the steep slope to the Thai side of the border, bullets ricocheting off the rocks around them. But as they got to the bottom of the slope, the three men broke out into uncontrollable laughter. In the words of Winston Churchill, nothing in life is so exhilarating as being shot at without result. Soon after this, David would meet a man who would mark the start of something big. As David was organizing medical supplies and trying to figure out how he would possibly deliver the supplies and render aid to the wounded by himself, a Karen man walked out of the jungle. He was wearing combat fatigues, carried an M16 rifle, and wore multiple ammo magazines fitted to his chest along with a few grenades. He wore a small cap on his head and had a noticeable earring. As he walked up flashing a grin at David, all he could think was, it's an angel from God, a pirate angel. His name was Elia, and after David asked him for help, Elia called for three Karen refugees around them to grab the medical supplies and follow them. And with that, the five men returned towards the sound of distress and stepped into the jungle towards the Burma army and all those fleeing refugees. The mission at hand had been laid out for David. The mission on the Burma-Thailand border was a taster for what God had called him to do in the Far East. The political and military situation in Burma was too big for a mere man to overcome. But with God all things are possible. Instead of trying to take on the Burma army on its terms, David responded with a strategy of love, not hate. A kind of asymmetrical warfare. Action was the name of the game fighting acts of brutality and hatred with acts of love and compassion. This new movement needed a name, and the name Free Burma Rangers was chosen. Free to free the oppressed peoples, Burma, David's new adopted homeland, 
and Rangers because after all, David was a Texan. Aaliyah and another Karen leader came up with their motto. Love each other, unite and work for freedom, justice and peace. Forgive and don't hate each other. Pray with faith, act with courage, never surrender. David and Karen always saw their mission in Burma as something God had called them into, and it was something they both felt a very strong pull towards. And so when they had children, it wasn't as if their mission suddenly changed. It simply expanded and gave it an entirely new dimension. Their three kids, Suzanne, Sahali, and Peter, have grown up in Burma from the time they were infants. They serve just as David and Karen do within the FBR family. Many have felt it their business to criticize this, seeing raising children in a conflict zone as reckless and foolhardy. But David sees things differently. Well, perfect love casts out fear. God loves us and gives us total freedom and lets us get hurt and lets us die. Wow. That must mean there's more going on. That must mean his perspective is different than ours. That means to me, there is heaven, which is eternal, and it's going to be okay. That even our sins and huge mistakes we make or others make against us, which may cause our early death, that's temporary. And the things of life are fatal, but they're not final. If I stop and pray, God is always, and I try to pray with my kids. Okay, you want to do this, you want to do that. Let's pray first. It's not fire and forget. Every day, every mission is different. Let's pray and see how Jesus is leading us. That way, we put it up on the altar, and we, and we tell our agenda, even though some of it may embarrass us. And so I think that's how family tries to make all our decisions. How are you going to share the gospel with someone? How are you going to help someone who's in trouble if you're worried about your own safety? What about their safety? Do you think those moms like being there under attack? Well, there's no way you can help them this far away. So if safety is your number one goal, don't go anywhere. And even then, it's going to come to you. And so I think the only way we can live life is prayerfully. Because it's not, oh, we're always bold. We're always going to do this. We're always going to run to the sound of the guns. No, it's there's the sound of the guns. There's the sound of me. Jesus, what do you want me to do? Because I'm going to need your help not to be rash or reckless or a coward and not do anything. I need your love and wisdom how I'm supposed to do this. And I think that's how we approach everything, including what we let our kids do. My wife said once in a, you know, a kind of a, we're talking about these things. She said, Dave, we should not be led by all the things that could happen that are bad. We should be led by the opportunities God is giving us right now. The ranks of the Free Burma Rangers would swell from its founding in 1997 to train over 250 multi-ethnic teams. Over 70 full-time teams would come to be active by 2015, conducting relief missions throughout the ethnic areas of Burma. David and his team would go on to help so many people, but the horrors they witnessed throughout their work would put their faith to the test time and time again. One such incident occurred in January of 2015. David and his team were in the small village Nam Limpa in Ketchin State. They received a report that two young Kitchen women had been raped and killed in a village not far from where they were. The two women were volunteer missionaries and had been set upon while they slept on the church grounds. 
it had been the work of the Burma army. Shortly after the reports, photos of the two women's bodies were sent to one of the FBR members. It showed two women laying side by side, partially undressed, bloodied faces, their fingers bloodied and broken. A long, thick, blood-covered piece of wood sat next to them, clearly the murder weapon. Anger began to seize David. In his heart, he wanted to kill every Burma army soldier, but what he was feeling was hate, and that was not what FBR was about. His beliefs and his feelings were not matching. He dropped to his knees and prayed a prayer of anguish for the loss of the two young women, for their families, and he surrendered his feelings of hate and need for revenge. He recognized that the best way for him to avenge this act of evil was to write the report on the incident and send it out to his journalist contacts. The incident is a perfect example of how FBR operates. They are not a paramilitary force. They are not a militia. The most effective way to fight atrocities by the Burma army is not to engage them in a full force armed conflict. It is to document them, show them to the world, expose evil for what it truly is, and then to provide help, hope, and love to the oppressed. By February 2015, FBR was on the march out of Ketchin State. The trip back was to take about 19 days. As David sat in a small village on the night of February 4th, he was going through emails when a subject line caught his attention. FBR in Kurdistan? Question mark. It was from a good friend, Victor Marks. Marks and his wife had an operation called All Things Possible Ministries, helping kids in prison in the US. The email contained something quite remarkable an invitation to Iraqi Kurdistan, and a time constraint of seven days. What was happening in Iraq and Syria was no secret. It was plastered on every news report in the world. After the failure of Iraqi political leadership and the ongoing civil war in Syria, the group known as ISIS expanded their influence throughout the region. In June of 2014, they stunned the world by capturing Mosul, Iraq's largest city outside of Baghdad, with a population of 1.8 million. The Sunni backlash at the Shia-controlled Iraqi government had culminated in a dangerous terrorist group now known as Islamic State. The group had used the instability brought on by the Syrian civil war to recruit fighters with tremendous success, and they then turned their attention to Iraq. By 2015, ISIS had full control of Mosul. Much of the strategic roads between Mosul and Baghdad along the Tigris River and had the Syrian city of Raqqa as their Syrian capital. The Kurds located in northeastern Iraq now began to feel increasingly concerned that they were next on the ISIS chopping block. ISIS had moved into Kurdish territory in fall of 2014 and they had given religious and ethnic minorities three choices. Convert to an extremist version of Sunni Islam, flee for their lives, or die. Hundreds of thousands fled to Kurdistan, which was considered the last safe place in Iraq. Thousands of Yazidis fled to Erbil, the capital of the Kurdistan region of Iraq. After ISIS placed their sights on Erbil, the US military finally got involved in the conflict, and the Air Force began a heavy campaign of airstrikes on ISIS positions. This was the backdrop in which David received the call in February of 2015. I get a message from Victor. 
hey, this is this is Victor. I just been invited to Iraq to help Yazidi people in Kurdistan, northern Iraq, Yazidi women who had been tormented by ISIS and many family members killed and they're in a bad state. I'm gonna take a team of counselors and try to comfort them and help them. And please come yourself and see if there's something you can do because you guys don't have any safety rules and there's no organizations like yours at the front line. I'll, I'll buy your ticket. Just come and see if it's something God wants you to do, but I think it is. I said, I'll pray. And I prayed, my, my family was with me on that mission and my team, most of my key leaders of Burma were on that mission. And we all had the same united feeling. Yeah, but the caveat he said is be here in seven days. Okay, God, if you want us to go, you got to do a miracle because we got to be there in seven days. And it's take 19 days just to walk around the Burma army, much less do border crossings and everything else. So it's impossible without God. And we had this peace and we kind of laughed about it. Okay, we'll do it. You know, is it possible, but we'll say yes. And that's it. I thought, that's it. Replied that to Victor. The next morning we got up out of this mountain and the resistance came and said, you're not gonna believe this. The Burma army that was blocking our way right in front of us have moved and they're walking down our old path. That means we can go back directly to the border in three days. If we walk like 30 something miles a day. Really? Yes. That's pretty strange. So we took off and three days hard walking, get to the border. The border crossing was flawless, which is rare, we didn't have to wait. And next thing you know, in seven days, we are in Iraq. The same day David received the invitation to Iraq, ISIS had released a video to the world. In the video, 21 Coptic Christians who had been kidnapped a month earlier were videoed in identical orange jumpsuits with their hands cuffed behind their backs. Beside them walked masked men dressed in black. The men were forced to kneel beside the sea, and after a brief speech from the leader of the group, the masked men killed all 21 captives. David and his son Peter, who was nine at the time, arrived in Erbil just a week after receiving the invitation from Victor. Erbil is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world with human settlements dating back 7,000 years. They met with the Defense Minister of Kurdistan, General Mustafa, and a question was immediately raised. And we landed there and met Victor. He introduced us because he has a lot of connections to the Defense Minister of the Kurds. And the Defense Minister said, that's your son? You brought your son here? I said, yes. And he said, you brought your most precious thing. I give you my most precious thing, my country. Go anywhere you want. And that's how it started. The Kurds were fierce fighters, known as the Peshmerga. Since 2003, they had taken on responsibility for defending the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Though a majority of Kurds are Sunni Muslims, most consider themselves Kurds first, and Muslims second. David's first mission was to get to Sinjar, where an ISIS siege of the Sinjar Mountains had just been broken. Back in late 2014, ISIS had captured Sinjar and slaughtered entire villages of men and taken women and children captive. Estimates give numbers as high as 4,000 killed and 10,000 abducted. By February of 2015, the Peshmerga had regained control over much of Sinjar and David and Peter joined a convoy of land cruisers with multiple armed groups, all vying to be the first to the top of the newly liberated Sinjar Mountains. They met many new people there and fostered relationships that would prove vital to them being able to help the Kurdish people. After returning to Dohuk, David met General Afandi. Explaining who he was and why he was there, 
He then asked if he could pray. The general agreed, but as he began to pray, David felt God tell him, get on your knees. Wanting to make a good impression and not wanting to seem like a nutcase, he hesitated. But then he obeyed, got down on his knees and prayed. When he finished, the general looked him in the eyes and said, You believe in God and fear him like we do. Go wherever you want. This example of how to gain the trust of someone you have little in common with is an important one. David was an American Christian who had never been to Kurdistan before. General Afandi was a traditional Kurdish man, a Muslim, and was surely wary of some stranger seeking to come in and help his people. But the act of submission in this moment was so important. It was the surrendering of control and a showing of reverence that disarmed the general and allowed for a trust to be built between himself and David. After this, David and Pete made their way to the front line. This was where the real need was, where on a daily basis ISIS was killing and wounding Kurdish fighters and threatening civilians. And so, as the rest of the team left, they stayed the night at the front with the Peshmerga. As the sun set, all was quiet as they drank tea with the soldiers. Then out of nowhere, a bullet cracked over their heads. ISIS preferred to attack at night, when they were less vulnerable to American airstrikes. The Kurds returned fire, but it was all over in a few minutes, barring a few blasts from ISIS snipers. As dawn came, David and the rest of the men manning the bunkers began to ease up, and some drifted off to sleep. David sat pondering what their role was to be in Kurdistan. The needs were great and his experience meant he was a unique tool that could be used for good. Returning to Thailand in March, David met with the FBR leadership and explained that it was his belief that God was calling them to go and help in Iraq. One of the major obstacles was money. They estimated that $60,000 would be needed to go back and make a difference. Aliyah, Monkey, and Ray Ka agreed to go. They were all experienced rangers. Along with David's family of five were Micah, their Kachin coordinator, Jesse, their operations coordinator, Hosanna, who helped with missions coordination, Jonathan, a climber who worked for a Bible translation group in Papua New Guinea, Paul Bradley, a missionary and former member of the U.S. Navy, and Justin, a former Marine who had fought in Iraq in 2004 and now helped out part-time with FBR activities in Thailand. Justin was a last-minute addition, but as David prayed, he felt that it was the right thing to do to invite him. David didn't know it at the time, but Justin would go on to save his life not once on the mission, but twice. After an advanced team had already left for Iraq, and on the day David and the rest of the team were scheduled to leave, the last of the donations came in and they reached their $60,000 goal. Most of the team received visas without much issue, but Elias didn't come through right away. He had been having doubts about coming, and when his visa didn't come through, the doubts became overpowering. But a relationship that David had made during his first trip came to the rescue, and his friend Farang reached out to the Kurdish interior minister, who personally saw to it that Elias had permission to enter Kurdistan. Mosul is the ancient city of Nineveh, 
where the book of Jonah tells the story of Jonah's journey to the city to preach repentance. And as Aaliyah finally met the rest of the group at the front line, he said with a laugh, I am the second Jonah. I didn't want to come, but God wanted me to. Though the Karen members of the team didn't speak the same language, they bonded immediately with the Kurds. The oppression they had experienced in their lives in Burma gave them the sympathy necessary to see the struggles of the Kurds, and that bond of compassion and understanding was vital. As Genesis 50:20 says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The team assisted General Afandi and trained the KRG, Kurdish Regional Government Forces, as they had been doing in Burma for decades. They provided frontline first aid, shelter, food, and clothing for anyone in need that they encountered. The team first headed for the Sinjar Mountains, only a few kilometers from the Syrian border. There they helped hundreds of Yazidis and heard and documented their stories. One story was told by a Yazidi man who was now providing security support for the people on the mountain. Isis had attacked Sinjar, where he lived. He was away when they came, and his mother, father, and one-year-old baby were captured. Those captured by Isis were taken deep into Isis-occupied territory and had been scarcely seen again. The boys captured by Isis were brainwashed in extremist ideology and hatred, so they could be sent out to fight in the front lines. The fate of the girls was even worse. Isis notoriously used young girls as sex slaves and sold them off as wives to Isis fighters. This was just one of thousands of heartbreaking stories. All had been quiet while they had been at Sinjar, but there were rumors of an ISIS attack very soon. As the team sat eating dinner with some Peshmerga soldiers, Justin, the former Marine, quite matter-of-factly asked David what he would do if ISIS attacked tonight since he had no weapon. David responded that if God wanted him to have one, then he would provide it. Justin wasn't pleased by the response. Not a moment later, a captain named Mohammed came into the tent and said, Tonight, maybe ISIS will attack us. Mr. David, take my pistol just in case. And just like that, David had procured a Walther 9mm. Not long later, as they sat in their tent, they heard the crash of a mortar near their perimeter. And then followed another. By now the Peshmerga had manned their guns, and they returned fire with a vengeance all along the front line. Dinner was over. David crawled out of the tent and grabbed the pistol he'd been given. His first job was to tend to the wounded Peshmerga. He, Jonathan, and Aaliyah pulled the man to a relatively safe position. Isis were hammering their position with small arms fire, and the mortars continued to fall near their position. As David looked over the berm protecting them from the fire, he could see ISIS fighters rushing their position, firing AK-47s. Lord, is this the time to fight? He asked. The answer was yes, and he stood, held the pistol steady, picked a target, and unloaded his first magazine. The fire was tremendous at this point, and the Peshmerga were taking casualties. An armored personnel carrier rolled up to evacuate the wounded, and after it left, one of the men tossed David a rifle. It was pitch black and the weapon had no night vision, 
so David used bullet tracers to aim. He aimed straight at the ISIS machine gun that was pinning down the group he was defending their position with. After a few squeezes of the trigger, the firing from the machine gun finally ceased. By now the Kurds had radioed into the Americans for air support, and several minutes later a jet thundered overhead and dropped its payload. The ground shook and a massive ball of fire lit up the night sky. After that, ISIS called it quits for the night. The following day, David prayed for their mission in Kurdistan. He prayed for ISIS to be stopped, for the Kurds to be freed from all oppression, and for the hearts of the enemy to be changed, something only God could do. In the summer of 2015, David and his family returned to the States. During their visit, they testified to the US Congress alongside a Yazidi woman who had been captured and raped for five months in ISIS-held Syria before her eventual escape. They did their best to appeal for help from the US military. By the summer of 2015, the US News and World Report had stated that US and coalition aircraft had flown an estimated 44,000 sorties in the fight against ISIS, but more needed to be done to put an end to the brutality ISIS was unleashing. David briefed several political and military officials about the ISIS supply routes in Iraq and Syria. The fact remained that up until then, their supply routes were unencumbered. This amazed some at the State Department and in Congress. Whether it was on purpose or not, the lack of airstrikes on ISIS supply lines meant they had the capacity to continue to wage war on the Kurdish forces in northern Iraq. But just a week after David spoke to them, US airstrikes finally hit the major roads used by ISIS to resupply their fighters. The impact this had on hampering ISIS's ability to go on the offensive cannot be overstated. David and his team were back in Iraq by October of 2015. They stayed for a month before heading back to Burma in November. Just after they left, Sinjar was finally retaken for good by the Kurds, and ISIS were completely pushed out of the area. Returning again in the new year, Karen and the kids set up camp on Sinjar Mountain to continue to assist the displaced Yazidis there. David returned to the front line, which was now two miles outside Sinjar. As they liberated areas of Sinjar that had just been freed from ISIS control, the full scale of ISIS's evil became evident. They soon discovered mass graves. At one site in particular, the remains of 88 women, at another, the remains of 50 men. The frequency of these sites was such that it became the norm. In fact, over 20 mass graves were discovered just in the Sinjar area alone. These were the people ISIS had deemed not useful after they had captured the village. As one man put it, This is something people cannot believe unless they see it with their own eyes. At the end of this mission in February of 2016, David began considering going to Syria. ISIS were on the run by this point. The pressure was fully on them on all sides. American, Syrian, Russian, even Iran were involved in pushing back the caliphate. After much prayer, it was decided they would leave for Burma and return again in May. By May, the territory controlled by ISIS was mainly centered around Mosul in northern Iraq and Raqqa in north-central Syria. The team assisted in Syria throughout May and June, tending wounded at the front line 
delivering food and supplies to displaced peoples, and gave help to over a thousand orphans in Kobani, a Turkish city right on the Turkish-Syrian border. The team prayed and sought guidance on what to do next. I wanted to stay longer in Syria because the situation is very bad. And my kids are like, Dad, we promised we'd be back to speak at these churches in America. And we have these rodeos coming up. And we, we think it's time to go. And I said, no, I think it's time to stay. Well, let's put it all on God's altar. We put it on his altar and we listened. And I asked everybody, what did you feel God tell you? And my family and my team all said, we still think we should go. And mm-hmm. what do you think? And I said, God didn't tell me anything. I felt nothing. We prayed again. I still felt nothing. And everybody else felt convicted we should go back to the U.S. And I said, okay, I have to acquiesce to y'all because obviously God sold something to you. He didn't tell me anything. So I have to go with you. And I didn't like it emotionally or intellectually, but I had this deep peace that it's okay. They returned to Syria in September of 2016. The rumor of the long-awaited offensive to push ISIS entirely out of Iraq had grown considerably, and they began to hear stories of families fleeing Mosul, anticipating the bloody fight soon to come. Coalition forces had dropped leaflets over Mosul to warn the civilian population that a bombing campaign would soon commence. These families were left with an impossible situation. Flee the city and risk being shot by ISIS while trying to escape or stay put and risk being killed by airstrikes or caught in the crossfire when the Iraqi army arrived. As more and more civilians fled, a picture of what ISIS-controlled Mosul was like came into focus through their stories. Civil order was non-existent. There were no working hospitals, schools, little to no news from outside of Iraq, no food or supplies to buy at the markets, and above all, no liberties whatsoever. Women caught outside without a male relative were often severely punished. Before ISIS, Mosul had been a very diverse city with sizable populations of Christians, Muslims, Yazidis, and other groups living together in relative peace. Now, all minorities were gone. A month later, on October 26, 2016, the offensive on Mosul finally began. David and his family were back in the U.S. again, and they quickly boarded flights and headed back to Iraq. They knew the need would be even greater now than during any of their other missions in Iraq and Syria. David joined the assault on Bashika, a Yazidi-majority city before ISIS came to power. Cramming as many men into each vehicle as they could, the attack column set off towards the city, guns blazing. ISIS were on the run, retreating towards their main base of Mosul, and the resistance was weak. They cleared buildings and secured the town. About a week later, David was settling in for some sleep in one of the vehicles when he was informed that an attack was expected about a kilometer away. But as he nodded off to sleep, rounds from a machine gun whizzed over his vehicle. The attack was not a kilometer away. It was here and now. An RPG exploded near them and David readied himself to get into the fight. As he rounded the position where Peshmerga soldiers were returning fire, an RPG roared past him and exploded close by, knocking him off his feet. As he arrived at the Peshmerga firing position, he could clearly see ISIS muzzle flashes and returned a fury of fire, emptying half a dozen magazines. 
David called in air support from his contact in the US Army, and a drone was sent to deliver a strike on the ISIS position. And with that, the firefight was over. The following day, they arrived in the town of Faisalia. ISIS had fled, and most of the town's residents came out to thank their liberators. But as they continued on, off to the side there was a crowd of about 200 mourners. It was a funeral. David's interpreter, translator and guide Shaheen warned him to stay away. He informed David that an American airstrike had hit a suspected ISIS position a few days prior. One of the bombs had missed its intended target and hit a house, killing eight civilians, including children. Here was a large crowd of people mourning the loss of loved ones from an American bomb. And now David, a former American soldier, was right there at the site of the funeral. David prayed and he felt God was telling him to go over there. His father had always told him, Dave, always be the first to apologize. He stuck his pistol behind his waistband and started towards the group. Looking the group of men in front of him in the eyes, and seeing pure anger and pain staring back at him, he said, I am an American. I am sorry the Americans did this. We apologize. As an American, I'm sorry. Please forgive us. Shaheen translated. David got down on his knees and began to pray. After he finished, he looked up at the men surrounding him and told them, My life is not worth eight of yours, but it is all I have, and I give it to you. That is all I can give you. I pray for mercy and healing. He then offered the pistol in his waistband. Again, Shaheen translated. One of the men who had lost multiple family members broached him. No, 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 no. We won't kill you, he said, tears streaming down his face. We know it was a mistake. We forgive you. We love you. The man lifted David to his feet, and as he looked around at the men, their whole demeanor had changed. Most now had tears running down their faces, and David prayed again with them. A miracle had taken place. Where there was only hate, despair, and hopelessness before, as he had stepped into that group, now there was grieving, understanding, and love. Before leaving the site, David took photos of the ruins and recovered parts of U.S. munitions with serial numbers intact with the hopes that his contacts at the State Department could identify them, investigate, and pay some kind of restitution to the families. David continued to assist the Kurds in clearing the smaller towns and villages to the east of Mosul for the remainder of the month. Bashika was almost completely clear of ISIS. Things were beginning to settle down, and they were preparing for what they all knew was the eventual offensive on Mosul itself. But on November 10th at dawn, bullets began to impact the building David and the other men were sheltering in. ISIS was on the counterattack. Grabbing his rifle and two hand grenades, David ran with the others to a berm around one of the Peshmerga bunkers. Bullets whizzed overhead and impacted the sandbags around the bunker. There were three ISIS fighters in a trench about 40 meters from their position. They were safe where they were, but it was also a stalemate. Someone needed to make a move, or they'd be bogged down in this firefight until they all ran out of ammo. David prayed, asking God what he would have him do. He wanted to act, but this wasn't his mission here. His mission was to give aid, tend to the wounded, 
and provide for the needs of the many victims. But how could he do that when these men would not relent in their evil deeds? This was also very dangerous. Popping out of cover could end with a bullet in the head very quickly. This was life or death. The Peshmerga didn't move. They were frozen with this very real danger as well. Lord, what would you have me do? David asked. Then he felt God say, do your best. David knew exactly what to do in this situation. He had been an army ranger and a member of special forces. This was in his wheelhouse and completely beyond most of the rest of these men. He looked down the line and shouted, I'm gonna go. He picked Micah as his backup, asking him to follow a few yards behind, said one last prayer, and climbed atop the berm to face the enemy. He took off running perpendicular to the trench. Then when he got within 15 meters, he unpinned a grenade and threw it into the trench. A couple of seconds later, it went off with a deafening bang. Rushing to the edge of the trench, he could see one ISIS fighter down. Suddenly, the other fighters opened up and dozens of rounds zinged past his body. He looked to the right and could see one fighter firing from his shouldered AK-47, squeezing off a few rounds at a time, trying to shoot him from about 15 meters away. Hatred was clearly visible in his eyes, a deep-seated hatred. Now running parallel with the edge of the trench, David readied his second grenade, pulled the pin, and threw it in. He then fired furiously at the trench. Suddenly a grenade came out of the trench and landed just a few meters away from him and detonated. David was unhurt, but he was badly stunned. The concussion of the powerful blast had slowed everything down. He lethargically replaced the magazine in his rifle and about 10 seconds later came out of his stupor. By this point, about half a dozen Peshmerga were moving across the gap towards the trench. And just then, one was shot in the chest and went down. The remaining soldiers pulled the wounded man back and retreated. David and Micah were alone again. David began firing through the smoke and dust, and then he ran out of ammo. Yelling at Micah to give him his weapon, he took Micah's rifle and resumed firing. He crawled towards the edge of the trench, peering up ever so slightly to see if he could catch a glimpse of the ISIS fighter's position. As he did, his eyes met with one of the fighters. A moment later, both of them fired. David's round found its target. The fighters didn't. Now wounded, David could see the hatred in his eyes turn to fear. David and Micah were quickly running out of ammo. It was now or never. Micah jumped to his feet and began suppressing the two remaining fighters as David crawled into the trench and then ran down it. As he turned, he could see the two fighters trying to shoot Micah. He fired at both, and a moment later, both of them crumpled to the ground, dead. The Peshmerga ran forward now, pouring into the trench. As they checked the bodies for ammo, suddenly someone yelled, Suicide vest! one of the soldiers opened up on the ISIS fighter's body and the vest went off. The fighter's body blew into pieces, one of the limbs traveling all the way down to where David stood and hitting him. Three Peshmerga were wounded, but no one was seriously hurt. As the men relaxed a bit, it was clear the fight was nigh over, and they all gave a collective breath of relief and gratitude that this had shaken out the way it did. 
it could have been very different. The devil is always going to tell you all the bad things that could happen. Of course they could. Of course they could. But what's really happening right now? What opportunity has God given you right now? What doors open now? That's what you deal with, not all the what ifs. Waging war brings up a predicament in the mind of anyone who clings to faith. Is what I'm doing righteous? Am I seeking vengeance for my own personal fight? Or am I doing the will of God? David's mantra has always been that everything we do in life must be motivated by love. Love for God and love for others. For David, with the situation in Iraq, it was the case that the only loving thing to do was to help put an end to the evil actions being perpetrated on the innocent by ISIS. Stopping them from further destruction was the greatest act of love in that situation. By mid-November, the battle for Mosul was raging. The Iraqi army and coalition forces were driving hard at ISIS in an attempt to expel them from Iraq's second largest city. On the 19th, David got a call from a large NGO humanitarian organization. They were in a frustrating predicament. They had a large shipment of food and supplies ready to go for civilians still stuck in Mosul, but their rules forbade them from entering an active war zone. David was asked if his team could deliver the shipment, and after praying, he felt the answer was yes. They were staying in Iraq and going even deeper into the fight. David and his frontline team met up with General Mustafa of the Iraqi army. Their route to Mosul had been an eventful one. They had taken ISIS far on the way there, barreling down side roads to avoid it. Just a couple of days after arriving, they would have another close call. David went on a rescue mission to save a stranded group of Iraqi cooks who had been pinned down near an ISIS-controlled village. Three of the men had been shot and they needed to be evacuated immediately. While speeding to the men's rescue, a fear suddenly came over David. What on earth am I doing here? He thought to himself. Then a famous verse came into his mind. John 15:13. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Suddenly the thought of death wasn't such a burden because he was here for the right reasons. He was here to save lives. Peace washed over him. The three wounded men were rescued and brought back to the command post. One Iraqi soldier had been hit seven times during the mission, but all survived. David learned two valuable lessons. One, when God calls you into battle, he goes with you. And two, don't take matters into your own hands. Allow God to guide you and you'll know what to do. He would put these two lessons into practice on countless occasions over the next few months in Mosul. On the 18th of February, David and his team crossed the Tigris River, headed towards Mosul. As the Iraqi army surrounded the city, hundreds and then thousands of civilians began to flee towards them to escape ISIS and the fight that was about to commence. The team gave aid to those fleeing, but care needed to be taken as it was never clear who was an innocent civilian and who was a potential ISIS bomber hidden in the crowd of people. As they approached the last high ground before they settled into the plains around Mosul, they met some ISIS resistance, but they had overwhelming firepower and managed to push through it. They met up near a farmhouse where one of the ISIS fighters had fled before blowing himself up. As they approached the main house, an Iraqi family emerged, a man with women and children peeking out behind him with great fear in their eyes. 
David again used prayer to disarm the tense situation and prayed for a new life for the family. The children started to warm to them and big smiles eventually greeted the team. A little girl around three years old tugged on David's pant leg and shouted up at him. Her joy and smile lit up the team's day and they felt as though they were truly making a difference to these people. And this family was thanking us and this little girl was holding on my pant leg. She's so sweet, little three-year-old. America, America, and I just instantly bonded with her and it was a happy day and we thought, wow, we're part of the liberation of people who've been under ISIS for three years and thank you, Lord, and everybody was happy. And then the family said, we're gonna go visit our relatives we haven't been able to do for three years. I said, great. And here's, and we gave them some, some money to help them, gave some chocolate to the kids and the little three-year-olds. As the family piled into a tractor trailer and began to drive away, the team waved goodbye and began walking up the hill again. Suddenly, there was a massive explosion. They get on their tractor, start driving away. Well, ISIS, you know, as they retreated, they put landmines out. They blew the tractor up, killed that kid. We tried to save her life, gave her CPR and... Her whole stomach was filled with blood and she had shrapnel all through her and stopped breathing and we couldn't get it back. She died. And it, it choked everybody up. I mean, there was, you know, everybody there had been in a lot of combat and the, the Kurdish and the, the, excuse me, the Iraqi medics, our Burma medics were treating wounded and dead kids every day almost. But tell them about this little kid dying we'd been just connected with, just everybody was crying, which rarely happened like that. This family they had just been visiting with, who they had helped liberate from the grips of ISIS terror, was now fighting for life. The mother had been seriously wounded and the father had a large gash on his head. The little girl David had just bonded with was now laying on the ground motionless. As they loaded the wounded and the little girl's body into an ambulance and shut the doors, an anger started to grow within David's heart. A brutal hatred for those who had just perpetrated this evil act that could only be quenched by vengeance. I remember being just also filled with anger and said, that's it, we're gonna kill every ISIS. We're gonna share the gospel of Jesus and give food and medicine, but in between, I cannot live with myself letting this happen. We have to stop these guys. That's justice. And then the next morning I woke up, I said, Lord, show me the truth of what I decided yesterday of, of, of justice. And I opened the Bible three times. I just put my finger at random and I came up three times with the same Verse or idea, revenge belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Revengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I was like, wow. And suddenly it hit me, what I called justice was revenge. And what was the difference? Love. Because without love, there's no justice. We all need mercy. Without mercy, there's no justice. There's no perfect people. There's not even perfect human laws. It's always loopholes and exceptions and extenuating circumstances. You know, laws are made for people. People are not made for laws. And so they have to be used with, with, with justice, which is love and mercy. And there's a time for punishment and there's reasons for punishment, but it's wrapped in love. And I remember thinking, wow, God, I was after revenge because I hate those people. I couldn't care less what happened. So in fact, I wish I'm dead. That's revenge. And I said, Jesus, forgive me for revenge. I give it up. And it was like a 2,000 pound weight was pulled off my shoulders, a weight I didn't even know I was carrying. I thought, man, if you kept that, that would have slowly warped you. And you would have thought you were right. And so 
My hatred of ISIS went away. My need to kill them all went away. I don't have to kill anybody. I just have to be an ambassador for Jesus. And that was a life-changing moment. The team went back to Thailand in March for meetings and FBR planning. They returned again to Erbil at the end of March and stayed through April. Most of their time was spent taking care of civilian refugees around Mosul and preparing for the final push to take Mosul scheduled at the start of May. Over 20,000 people received food during this time. On May 4th, the team joined the attack in the Musharrafa district of Mosul. As they followed the column of Iraqi army vehicles into the city, civilians poured out in the opposite direction. Some were wounded, others carried small children with them, and all had the look of sheer panic on their faces. At the front of the column, an ISIS suicide vehicle came through a group of buildings, drove straight for their vehicles, and detonated. Sniper fire could be heard up ahead, and bullets started to land all around them. They watched as one of them caught a young mother who was fleeing with her family. She fell to the ground, instantly killed as her husband held her and sobbed. Their Humvee was getting hammered by ISIS fire, and it was only a matter of time until it stopped running. The engine began leaking fluid, and the transmission began to falter. As they looked out of the bulletproof windows, they could see a soldier approaching. He was yelling that there was a family just down the hill who were being shot up by ISIS. David Muhammad Shaheen and two others jumped into the lumbering vehicle and they took off towards the gunfire. As they approached the family, it was clear that a man had been shot in the leg and he was struggling to get up. A woman was desperately trying to comfort her two children. They jumped out and loaded most of the family into the Humvee and David took off towards the man on the ground when they heard a gunshot followed by a scream. As he spun to see what had happened, he saw one of the little girls had been shot. The bullet had gone through her temple and exited through her eye. Somehow, she was alive. David grabbed her and loaded her into the Humvee and they began to tend her wound. David then loaded the wounded man into the Humvee and yelled, Go, go, go! Bullets still lit up the vehicle, but as Muhammad hit the gas, it wouldn't move. The transmission was literally shot. They called for another Humvee to come up and meet them. And as they waited for assistance, Muhammad looked at David and told him he needed to do something. The next moment, he was out of the Humvee. A few minutes later, Muhammad came roaring down the hill in another Humvee. He parked to their side, making sure to position the second vehicle in a spot where it would cover David's Humvee from ISIS fire. The man jumped out and began transferring the wounded to the second vehicle. Then they heard a yell and Shaheen went down. Muhammad leapt from his vehicle to help him, and he was shot as well. Six times. But he didn't go down. He grabbed Shaheen, struggled to the vehicle, loaded him in, then jumped into the driver's seat and took off over the hill again. As the team arrived back at the CCP, they unloaded the wounded and the adrenaline began to subside and the craziness of the past hour began to sink in. Both Muhammad and Shaheen were airlifted to a hospital in Baghdad. David spoke to Shaheen via telephone. He assured him that he was doing fine and was recovering well. But on May 14th, the team received a call from Baghdad telling them that Shaheen had died. 
There had been a false report that he had died before, so they initially refused to believe it. But this time, it was true. Shaheen was dead. He'd been improving, but a blood infection had quickly become septic, and the doctors couldn't save him. Amazingly, Mohammed had been shot six times and survived. Shaheen had been shot once, and he died. That's just the way it was. Though tragic and a shock to the team, Shaheen's death was not in vain. He had acted with bravery to save innocent people under heavy fire. He was a Yazidi man who had been heavily persecuted by ISIS and had fought back, and he had given the last full measure of devotion to his people, his life. David and his team decided to stay in Mosul after Shaheen's death. There was more work to be done, more people to save, and the threat from ISIS had yet to be neutralized. By the end of May, the team had moved to the northernmost bridge in Mosul with the 36th Battalion of the Iraqi Army. ISIS had turned the Shaifa Hospital in the area into their headquarters in the northwest of the city, heavily fortifying the position with anti-tank guns, sniper positions, machine gun nests, and RPGs. As they pushed through the Haiwi Kanisa district, this hospital was their main objective. On June 1st, the team settled in just a few hundred yards away from the hospital. That night, civilians attempted to use the cover of darkness to sneak across the four-lane road separating the hospital and an obliterated soft drink factory. Sniper fire could be heard all night as ISIS tried to pick off the civilians for fleeing. What the civilians didn't realize was that ISIS had night vision, and they were sitting ducks, even at night. As the sun began to rise on June 2nd, David looked across the highway and saw the work of ISIS from the night before. Bodies were strewn all over the roadway, and ISIS snipers continued to fire. David poked his head out just above cover to capture a few photos to share with their media sources. As he looked across, he could see a low retaining wall and about 20 dead bodies. Then he saw movement. It was a little girl peeking out from under her mother's burqa. Her mother was clearly dead. He saw more movement, this time a little boy, no more than three, moving through the dead bodies. God, how can I save them? He asked. The team met. They prayed and made a plan. They agreed they had to do something. Even though the hospital was armed to the teeth with ISIS fighters just waiting to claim another victim, doing nothing was out of the question. A call was put into Iraqi command, but they said a tank couldn't be spared at this time. David then called the US Army General assisting with the assault, informed him of the situation, and he promised David a smokescreen. They then sat down to eat, waiting for the Iraqis to return their request for a tank. At around 3 p.m., a coalition jet screamed overhead and dropped a smoke bomb. It was a practice run to check the coordinates, and it was dead on. After some pleading with the Iraqis and a lot of prayer, David eventually procured a single tank, and at 3.30, David asked for volunteers. Monkey, Sky, Ephraim, and Mahmoud agreed to go. The five men gathered and recited the Lord's Prayer. The Iraqi tank then rumbled around the corner and got into position for the assault. 
David and the other men took off behind the tank as it sped off directly towards the hospital. They each ran for their lives behind the 50-ton piece of machinery as it fired at the hospital and ISIS returned fire. Bullets pinged off the tank and ricocheted in all directions as the men felt the heat of the day beat down on them and the choking dust entered their lungs with each breath of air. Finally, the tank stopped across from the wall where the survivors were. By this point, the smoke had dissipated and it was pure suicide to run out from under the cover of the tank. David grabbed his satellite phone and requested more smoke from the American general. 10 minutes, he replied. They sat for the next eight minutes, hunkered behind the tank, as ISIS fire continued all around them. Then the sound of a jet engine approaching came in clearly over the sounds of gunfire, and a large bang could be heard, followed by a large puff of thick white smoke. It was now or never. Looking at the little girl, still huddled under her mother's clothing, David had one last moment to contemplate what he was about to do. What if this was his kid? What if someone could save her? But he had a family, children of his own. They would understand, he said to himself. This is what Jesus would have me do. Asking for his help, David got to the edge of the tank, and as Sky and Ephraim laid down covering fire, he made a run for the wall. Making it to the little girl, he grabbed her, but she clung on to her mother's lifeless body. Pulling her off, he tucked her under his arm and ran back towards the tank. Handing her to Mahmoud, who translated in Arabic, David thanked God for this little girl and for saving her life. Then David returned again to the wall, this time with help, and pulled two of the wounded men back to the cover of the tank. The last task now was carrying the survivors back to the command post. David carried the girl in his arms. Care had to be taken not to get run over, as the occupants of the Abram tank had enough to contend with, carrying at ISIS to cover their retreat, and driving backwards down a roadway littered with bodies, burned out vehicles, and rubble. When they arrived at the awaiting Humvees, ready to evacuate them, David attempted to console the clearly traumatized little girl. But she just stared back blankly, clearly in shock. She was not wounded, a miracle in and of itself, but she needed another kind of care. She needed to be held, to be made feel safe, secure, protected. She had just lost her mother, and her world would never be the same. As David arrived with her at the CCP, he gave her more water. She had drank half a dozen bottles of water on the drive back to command, having been without water for three days. David called for Karen, telling her about the little girl and asking her to go be with her. As the team started an IV on the girl, Karen picked her up into her arms, sat down in a chair, and just held her. Within five minutes, the girl's shaking and whimpering had subsided, and she fell asleep. They brought the little girl to a house where she could rest, and General Mustafa met with David and promised they would try to find the little girl's family, if any had survived, even promising to adopt her if none could be located. Many men had risked their lives to save this little girl, and some had even been badly wounded. But through her, God had deeply touched the hearts of every man involved in her rescue. It was in the heart of this brutality and violence that light had shone through the darkness. Love had conquered evil, a precious life was saved, and everyone was forever changed by it.
The battle for Mosul lasted until July of 2017. It is estimated that over 8 million tons of rubble filled the city from the fighting. Civilian deaths numbered somewhere around 7,000, with over 1 million displaced. The victory had also cost the lives of around 1,000 Iraqi soldiers, with a further 5,000 wounded. The story of the little girl who survived was broadcast by Iraqi media and posted on Facebook. Eventually, General Mustafa of the Iraqi army got a lead on her family. Her aunt and grandmother were alive and lived just east of Baghdad. They even found out her name. It was Demoa, which means tears. Demoa was reunited with her aunt and grandmother and taken to live with them. In November of 2017, David and his family had the opportunity to return to a much quieter, more peaceful Iraq than the one they had left just five months prior. They visited Erbil and the many Kurdish friends they had made there. They then traveled to Mosul, where so much of the heavy fighting had taken place. They visited Muhammad, who had recovered from being shot six times in the Battle of Mosul. They also visited Kofran, a woman who had been shot by ISIS and who the team had saved. They then returned to Erbil, where a very special family awaited them. David and his family had the chance to visit Demoa, the little girl he had saved in Mosul. She and her family had taken a six-hour taxi ride from the south up to Erbil to see them. Demoa was nervous at first, but as Suzanne and Sahali began playing with her, she loosened up and began to laugh and enjoy their company. In 2018, David and his family returned again to Mosul. This time it was to remember Shaheen. After visiting the place where he had been shot, they traveled to a new playground that had been built with funds FBR had received. They dedicated the playground to Shaheen, spray painting his name in English and Arabic on one of the structures. As they sat watching the neighborhood children playing, it was a moment of reflection on the past three years. The death and destruction ISIS had perpetrated on the very ground they stood on had now been replaced with the innocent laughter of children. Evil had been conquered by good, wickedness had been overcome, and hatred had been chased off by love founded in the heart of sacrifice. Sacrifice is the denial of oneself for the benefit of others. It takes a different kind of person to sacrifice anything for a stranger, let alone one's personal safety. The fruit of the work of David Eubank, his family, and his team is hard to comprehend. Their work continues in Burma and all over the world as they seek to do the mission God has placed on their lives with boldness, no matter where he may lead. If you've been hurt enough, there is no self-help discipline counsel that can fix your heart. It, it, no way, not, not in my experience, no way. You need something supernatural. And that's what Jesus does. And there's no explanation for it except it's his power. He's real. So that's that's all that can save you in those moments. You know, when, you, when you've been hurt a little, yeah, you can kind of tough it out, have it in perspective and be patient and be forgiving. When you've been hurt a lot, uh-uh. It's just wrong. You want them all to die. And only Jesus can change that. And that, 
I think of two things that I really am grateful for in Iraq more than anything. One, Jesus showing me that, forgiving me and helping me give up revenge and showing me the difference. And then second is loving the Iraqi people. I didn't even know who they were. I love them. To this day, I love them. They're special to me. And that's just a gift from God. This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and edited by Scott Einig. Iraqi quotations read by Barang Asgarian. A very special thanks to David Eubank for sharing his story. This episode is dedicated to the men and women of the Free Burma Rangers who continue to meet needs of the oppressed throughout the globe. Please consider donating to the work of Free Burma Rangers by visiting www.freeburmarangers.org. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for episode 6, The Equality of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table.